Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's major announcement today that he had promised claiming America needs a superhero, which turned out to be a pitch for tacky digital trading cars of him, quote, featuring amazing art of my life and career, which Trump is offering for only $99 each while supplies last. Joining us to discuss Trump's drop in the polls, which now has the White House recalibrating, expecting to run against DeSantis and adjusting their strategy to tie Trump to DeSantis, is Aaron Ruper, who until recently was the associate editor for politics and policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He is the author of Public Notice at AaronRuper.substack.com, and we will discuss his article with Noah Beletsky, Ron DeSantis is not moderate. Then on the 10th anniversary of Sandy Hook, we'll examine an article at The Guardian that finds 150 million guns have been sold in America since that gun massacre of first graders. Joining us is Tom Diaz, a writer, lawyer and public speaker on the gun industry and gun control. Formerly senior policy analyst at the Violence Policy Center, he is the author of Making a Killing and The Last Gun, How Changes in the Gun Industry Are Killing Americans and What It Will Take to Stop It, and Tragedy at Aurora, The Culture of Mass Shooting in America. His latest book is Broken Scales, The Crisis of Race and Justice in Divided America. And he has a video, Drums of War, which asks, are we headed towards a civil war? Then finally, with the European Parliament announcing today that it, quote, recognises the Holodomor, the artificial famine of 1932-93 to in Ukraine caused by a deliberate policy of the Soviet regime as genocide against the Ukrainian people. Joining us is Christina Floria, a professor of history at Cornell University who teaches courses on Eastern European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe. Her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition to Eastern European politics and societies. And she's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontlines of Europe. And we'll discuss her article at the New York Review of Books, Ukraine's Long Self-Determination. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Aaron Rupa, who until recently was an associate editor for Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. And he is the author of Public Notice at aaronrupa.substack.com. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aaron Rupa. Thanks for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And you've been writing about, along with Noah Bolesky, you've been writing about Ron DeSantis. And it's interesting that the White House reporters today are now saying that Biden is recalibrating his campaign strategy for 2024. It's assuming he runs. They figure they're not going to be running against Trump, but they're likely to be running against DeSantis. But what they're going to try and do is tie DeSantis to Trump. So (laughs) what do you think of that as a strategy? Well, I think it's a smart strategy, and I think that they are, um, you know, it's kind of common sense at this point, I think, for the White House to at least think about DeSantis because, um, you know, and, and you kind of have to take these polls with a grain of salt, but there was a poll earlier this week. Uh, I want to say it was a USA Today poll, but it created a lot of headlines because I think it showed DeSantis um, up around 50% among Republican uh, primary voters and Trump down in the 30s. 
And that was one of the you know first real tangible indicators that we've seen that, you know, maybe Trump uh, could lose this thing because, you know, even myself, uh, for many months, I sort of operated under the assumption that if Trump declared his candidacy, that would basically clear the field. And part of my thought process there, specifically with DeSantis, is some of the thing, same things I think that the White House is thinking about right now, that when DeSantis ran in 2018 for governor of Florida, he basically ran on the Trump cult of personality. Uh, he infamously had a campaign ad that showed his baby son building the border wall with toy blocks. Um, and that was kind of DeSantis's whole political identity. Now, of course, in recent years, he's tried to distance himself from Trump. And this week I did a Twitter thread on an event DeSantis had, I believe, on Tuesday, where he was really kind of indulging anti-vaccine talking points and public health misinformation. And he announced the creation of kind of an anti-CDC, uh, you know, that will uh, presumably flood the zone with misinformation and confuse people about vaccines and public health information more broadly. Um, so it seems like that was one indicator that, you know, maybe DeSantis will try and outflank Trump on the right or, you know, on the more extreme side on public health issues and try to distance himself from Trump in that way. But, um, you know, again, there's polling now showing that Trump's star is fading. Um, obviously, since he announced his campaign uh, a little over a month ago now, I don't think he's left one of his properties. Um, he's basically been hanging out at Mar-a-Lago and golfing on his own golf courses. Um, and, you know, this announcement that he had today, he hyped, you know, a big announcement on True Social. It ended up being an NFT sale, uh, which was widely mocked and interpreted as yet another indication that, you know, his star is kind of fading. So I've been kind of surprised by that as well. You know, again, I thought that Trump still had enough dominance over the GOP that if he announced that would basically clear the field. But it really looks at this point like DeSantis, if anything, has the upper hand. Well, in terms of the follow-up from Trump being a presidential candidate, having made that lackluster announcement, he hasn't done anything like a candidate would. So it's obvious he's doing that because he wants some, he thinks he might get some protection against these growing number of lawsuits against him as a, as a, a presidential candidate. But when he teased out that he was going to make a major announcement today, there was an expectation it may have something to do with the fact that he's running for president, but instead he's offering up these uh, line of digital trading cards uh, where he, he said that these cards feature amazing art of my life and career. And he compared them to baseball cards, saying at least they'll, hopefully they'll be much more exciting. And the cards go on sale for $99 each. So, boy... I mean, I yeah, guess there's a sucker born every minute, right? But who the hell's going to buy? Exactly. Exactly. And, and again, when Trump yesterday teased this big announcement, people were thinking, gee, you know, might he be putting his name out there for Speaker of the House? Because, of course, you don't have to be an actual House member to get that designation. You know, is he going to be announcing a set of rallies coming up? You know, there was some speculation about running mates. Um, and then, you know, it was even I saw Will Somner of the Daily Beast documenting that even hardcore Trumpers, we're very underwhelmed with his announcement today and criticizing him on True Social, um, you know, which is more ominous than people like you or myself criticizing him, which we would probably do anyway. But, you know, you're exactly right that, you know, he announced his campaign. Um, I think it was, you know, mid-November. And then, you know, he didn't even bother. This was, of course, before the Herschel Walker runoff election in Georgia. And, of course, Herschel only ran in the first place because of Trump. And he couldn't even be bothered to go campaign for him. And, you know, there's some speculation that maybe that was a political calculation that Trump would do more harm than good to Herschel if he went and held a rally for him. But then it's like that doesn't bode well for his presidential prospects if, you know, him holding a rally in Georgia, which is, you know, at, at best a purple state, has been trending more blue in recent years. But, you know, if that's damaging to Herschel's political prospects, you know, what does that say for Trump's chances of winning there in 2024 when that would you know, presumably be a very key state for him to try and flip uh, after what happened in 2020. So it's been very bizarre. You know, like you said, uh, his campaign hasn't had any of the hallmarks of a traditional presidential campaign. And so it does lead, you know, and fuel speculation that maybe part of it is to kind of shield himself from all of these investigations by being able to cloak himself in the mantle of being a political candidate and being able to say, you know, if there is some sort of indictment um, that, Biden and the Biden administration are going after a political rival, um, you know, and I think his behavior, you know, makes it easy to, to 
makes it easy to speculate in that manner, because if he was seriously running for president, you'd expect him to be out there leaving his properties, campaigning and doing the normal things that presidential candidates do. Well, one of the PACs that he set up, which are supposed to raise funds for Republicans, including Herschel Walker, he pocketed something like $140 million and didn't give Herschel Walker a dime. So <laughs> yeah. there you have it. That's but, been but, the story of his fundraising since he left office. You know, he, he, you know, even going back to early 2021, when he was fundraising relentlessly on stopping the steal and legal challenges to the election, um, and he raised hundreds of millions of dollars, and he spent a very small fraction um, of the funds on uh, Republican candidates in this most recent election. So, you know, maybe he's sitting on some of it for his own campaign. Um, I mean, that would make sense. But, you know, you would think that um, it would have done him a lot of good to try and help some of these candidates who he endorsed, you know, like Dr. Oz, Blake Masters, Herschel, you know, people like that who uh, really only ran, you know, b because they were hardcore Trumpers and because Trump endorsed them, it would have helped him for a couple of those candidates to win, because I think that's been the big cause of his star fading a little bit is this perception that he's a loser and that, you know, you go back to 2018, the wave election that happened that year, uh, 2020, of course, you know, he loses. And now 2022, uh, you know, when, when most of the candidates are still hardcore Trumpers, uh, you know, Republicans have a very underwhelming showing and that creates an opening for someone like DeSantis to basically be, you know, run as a Trumper without Trump. And, you know, DeSantis can say, given given his record in Florida, his resounding uh, re-election victory that he just had, that, you know, Trump's a loser and I'm a winner. And you can see how that'd be a persuasive case to make. So just to circle back to what you were talking about earlier, Aaron Rupar, about the poll numbers on Trump is sinking. He's, he's hit a seven-year low in a new poll from the Quinnipiac University poll released on Wednesday. Just 31% of registered voters surveyed hold a favorable view of Trump versus 59% who have an unfavorable opinion of him. Uh, and that's the lowest rating he's received since July of 2015. So, uh, and actually, uh, Biden, who's always been sort of floundering in the polls, he's coming up quite substantially so uh there's something underway <laughs> wouldn't well, you yeah, and i thought one of the polls I, I believe it was the usa usa today poll that i mentioned earlier had um as i mentioned earlier had DeSantis about like 15 to 17 points up on trump but then the other part of that that was interesting is that um it had trump you know they, they pulled trump versus biden head to head and biden i think was seven or eight points ahead of trump but then when they pulled DeSantis versus biden head to head DeSantis had a narrow lead over biden and so, you know, you can kind of see how, you know, when you watch Fox News these days or read the Wall Street Journal, the Murdoch empire is certainly trying to bury Trump and is really pushing this narrative that, um, you know, Trump, Trump's a loser, um, not in so many words, but, you know, they're very much trying to kind of tip the scales for someone like DeSantis. Uh, they had a big puff interview just today with Glenn Youngkin, who's another, you know, contender for the Republican nomination. Um, but, you know, when you see polls like that, you can kind of understand part of the rationale there is that, you know, if, if Trump ends up being the nominee again, and I think, um, you know, Democrats would be happy about that, too. Obviously, it'd be very dangerous for the country, but I think his likelihood of winning an election is uh, pretty low at this point. Well, it's just, you know, it feels like the guy's out of touch, particularly with this uh, making this big announcement. There'll be a major announcement on Thursday, and then he accompanied his post on Truth Social with a video of Trump saying, America needs a superhero. And then there was a little animation thing of, uh, of a cartoon version of Trump shooting lasers from his eyes in front of Trump Tower. And then it turns out that he's just grifting and uh, trying to sell digital tokens, pictures of himself, like baseball cards for 99 bucks each. And, you know, it's not like the enemy's going to buy it. But, I mean, him and his wife is also involved in in these crypto scams, haven't they noticed the crash of FTX and that crypto well, right. is down yeah. 75%? I mean, yeah. I mean, well, and the other thing, too, is, as you're laying that out, Ian, is that if you reflect back on Trump's first campaign in 2015 and 2016, one of the hallmarks, you know, was that he had a very grueling schedule and he was flying all over, doing rallies all over the country and doing interviews and you know, that was, of course, kind of the origin of the whole low energy attack on Jeb Bush was that Trump was kind of contrasting himself with Jeb. Um, and, you know, that was one thing I guess you did have to hand it to Trump for is that he did keep up a very grueling schedule and 
was doing rallies all over the place. And then um, there was actually a report, I think it was in the Washington Post. Um, I, I had kind of put this out there on Twitter, and it turned out that there had been some reporting on this, that um, since Trump announced his candidacy um, almost a month ago, and I, and I mentioned this earlier, he has not left his properties. Um, he has literally been at either Mar-a-Lago or one of his golf courses, uh, maybe his New Jersey property as well, um, the entire, you know, his entire schedule since announcing. And, um, you know, so the contrast between what he was doing to campaign seven years ago and what he's doing now uh, kind of lends credence to this idea that there might be more going on here than him, you know, making a sincere effort to return to the White House. Um, you know, or maybe he is, maybe, you know, as you mentioned, maybe he is just out of touch. I, I'm not sure, but it is very weird um, that he can't be bothered to, uh, you know, go meet people who aren't actually paying customers of his at this point. Right. Well, uh, maybe he's waiting to be indicted. I'm sure he's paying attention to the lawsuits against him, and it's not looking good. In fact, it gets worse every day. And on Monday, we'll have the final hearing of the January 6th committee. And then on the 21st of December, they'll release their report with criminal referrals. So perhaps he's you know, under siege and retreating to his own castle while uh, the army's <laughs> marshal outside the moat. So yeah. that could very well be. And, and, you know, I've interviewed lawyers for my newsletter, including uh, Ron Filipowski, who, uh, you know, is, is based in Florida and was at one point very tight with DeSantis, who, ha- you know, who have told me that they expect uh, Trump will be, you know, he, Ron even mentioned specifically December. Um, I interviewed him about a month ago. He was saying that he thought in December Trump would be indicted. Now, I I am not a lawyer, and um, I feel like people have been waiting for this, you know, waiting for the legal processes or the political process to take Trump out, you know, for six, seven years now. You can go back to, of course, the Mueller report and, um, you know, whether or not he would be indicted. He wouldn't be indicted as president, but, you know, what the Mueller report would say about, you know, obstruction of justice and things like that. The point simply being that at this point, I you know, I'll believe it when it happens and not not before then, because I just I feel like we've been waiting so long for there to be some sort of legal accountability for Trump uh, beyond kind of slaps on the wrist. So, you know, we'll see. December is now at this point kind of winding down, not to say that he couldn't be indicted after December. But of course, the January 6th committee will be its work will come to a conclusion. And um, it feels like maybe, you know, in that sense, at least the page will be turned. So, yeah, I mean, that could very well be part of his. I'm sure he is worried about that. Uh, but again, I'll, I'll believe it when it happens. Um, I, I'm not the biggest critic that you'll find of Merrick Garland. I think, you know, he's done a diligent and careful job. And I think, you know, not rushing into you know, the special master or the um, special counsel that he appointed Jack Smith. I mean, that seemed like the right move to me, given that there is a conflict of interest between, you know, possible indictment of someone who is a declared candidate to take Garland's boss's job, essentially. Um, but I will believe that Trump will be indicted when it happens. Well, just in the last minute, though, let's go back to your article, Aaron Rupa, with Noah Boletsky. Ron DeSantis is not moderate. That's an understatement, given the outrageous fact that he's now become an anti-vaxxer after encouraging people to take the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. So, you know, the guy is, I mean, a lot of people say this, and I certainly feel this way, that he's a, he's more of a threat than Trump because he's He's more disciplined, and he's even more right-wing, I think. Trump doesn't have any politics. It's all about him, not about anything else but him. And this guy is really, I think, a dangerous guy. The only saving grace is that he's dull as dishwater. So what do you think of his chances? Yeah, you know, it, it's strange because you're right that um, you know he's, he's very far to the right, especially on public health, his treatment of migrants, of course, the, you know, sort of human trafficking-esque flights that he had from Texas to Martha's Vineyard with uh, migrants on them to kind of, you know, punish liberals up in Massachusetts. Um, Even the, you know, the fights that he's picked with Disney, kind of the anti-LGBT stuff with the Don't Say Gay legislation. I mean, you know, he's been way out there in terms of policy. Um, And I do think, you know, when you combine that with, as you also kind of alluded to, he has a very kind of negative charisma. You know, he comes across as kind of a whiner and um, you, know, he, you know, Trump, you know, say what you want about him. He does have a certain appeal to his audience, at least, you know, he gets up there on stage and um, to some degree he has a sense of humor. You know, people love listening to him talk. Um, there is something there that you can kind of understand part of the appeal, why people go to his rallies and, you know, are drawn to him. Um, and DeSantis really has none of that, you know. And so I, I do wonder, you know, if, if they end up being on the debate stage together, 
and Trump attacks him for being, uh, you know, sycophant, essentially, and, you know, being part of the cult of personality. Um, not that he would put it in those terms, but, you know, basically being all about Trump, you know, and then kind of turning against him when it was convenient. I do wonder how DeSantis will respond to that. And that's been kind of a, a hallmark of his political identity in Florida is that, you know, he insulates himself from members of the press who will ask him tough questions. Um, I didn't think he fared very well in his debate against Charlie Crist. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are legitimate questions to be asked about how viable he will be outside of Florida. Um, you know, Florida has had a lot of demographic changes in recent years that have made it more red and have made it a very safe, you know, area for DeSantis to rack up huge victories like he did in November. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that will carry over to other states and, um, you know, or that his appeal will hold nationally. So, you know, I, I don't know how that's going to go, but um, I certainly think that, you know, if Trump and DeSantis got on stage together during a debate, I could really see that ending poorly for DeSantis. And the other thing um, on this topic that's worth mentioning, I think, is that it's good for DeSantis if other candidates stay out of it. You know, I think drawing the contrast one versus one against Trump is his best bet. Um, you know, if it ends up being a very crowded field with Glenn Youngkin, you know, maybe Nikki, ha Nikki Haley, DeSantis, a bunch of people like that, um, you know, 30% or 40% of the Republican base is completely blindly devoted to Trump. And so the more candidates that are in the mix, I think, you know, the more that could be decisive for Trump, you know, kind of holding his base and that being sufficient right. to kind of push out the other candidates. And so, you know, it's repeat kind of, of 2016, right? Exactly. So, you know, yeah. I think it definitely helps DeSantis if he can kind of draw the contrast and be sort of the anointed um, anti-Trump candidate, so to speak, or, you know, not anti-Trump, but kind of the alternative to Trump. Right. And so that's something that I have my eye on as we as we watch this race develop. Well, Aaron Rupa, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Aaron Rupa, who until recently was associate editor for politics and policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice at AaronRupa.substack.com. We're going to take a brief station break, and on the 10th anniversary of Sandy Hook, we're examining an article at The Guardian that finds 150 million guns have been sold in America since that gun massacre of first graders. Well, I'm sitting behind my desk in Washington, D.C. And everyone on cable news is yelling at me. And there's only one place in this whole wide world I want to go. That's down underneath the Florida sun. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tom Diaz, a writer, lawyer, and public speaker on the gun industry and gun control, formerly a senior policy analyst at the Violence Policy Center. He's the author of Making a Killing and The Last Gun, How Changes in the Gun Industry Are Killing Americans and What It Will Take to Stop It, and Tragedy in Aurora the culture of mass shooting in America, and his latest book is Broken Scales, The Crisis of Race and Justice in a Divided America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Diaz. Thank you so much, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Tom. And we just have observed the 10th anniversary of the Sandy Hook massacre, and obviously recently one of the most despicable people on this planet who has been pushing the the notion that the Sandy Hook thing didn't happen, it was a false flag operation by who knows what to take your guns away. Fortunately, the families won uh, those lawsuits. But I noticed this article in The Guardian today that in this decade since Sandy Hook, Americans have bought at least 150 million guns. So I recall how Obama broke into tears at the time of Sandy Hook. And why do we have the opposite reaction in America, where you have a hideous tragedy with young children just blown to pieces to the point where they're unrecognizable by their parents who have to bury them, and yet people go out and buy guns instead of wanting to throw them away and melt them down? Well, it's one of the great conundrums of, of, of the United States, and it's uh, something that, you know, as you suggest, I've looked at. 
I, I think that there are actually two factors at play here. One is that there has not been until relatively recently a really well-organized grassroots movement for gun violence reduction. And by that, I mean, up until I would say the last three or four years, most of the gun violence reduction organizations have been um, centered in Washington, D.C., and to some extent in New York or maybe um, Los Angeles. But they've been very uh, top-down kind of organizations, which means that in terms of changing people's minds, you don't have grassroots activists out there. You're depending on the U.S. Congress and whoever happens to be president to make change, and we've seen that hasn't worked. So I think, one, that's one factor. There is now a lot more um, grassroots organization going on and working to change people's minds, especially in the record of these horrendous disasters um, that go on every day, really. So that's one thing. There, that, I mean, that's when I want to think about the possibility of change, that's it. But as t- in terms of why does this continue to exist, I think there are two things. One is all societies, all governments, all nations have sort of founding myths that they believe in. And in the United States, there is still a strong uh, myth, and I think it's largely a myth, that somehow this country was founded in and made by raw-boned individualists with guns who, you know, conquered the West and so forth. That's still an image in people's minds um, that you grow up with, you know, almost from childhood. But in addition to that, the gun industry, and by the gun industry, I mean not just the gun industry in the United States, but the gun industry worldwide has taken advantage of that mythology and the existence of the so-called Second Amendment to market increasingly lethal types of firearms to the United States. When I first started writing about this, you know, we talked about the militarization of the gun market, the civilian gun market in the United States. And now, 24 years later, from the first book I wrote, Making a Killing, we are actually seeing Every single day, the consequences of that militarization. When one person, not even well-trained, can walk into a shopping center, a church, a schoolhouse, um, and open fire with weaponry that was designed for the modern battlefield, that's the consequences of the militarization that we've warned about. Um, so I see these two clashing forces, and I honestly do not know what the consequence will be. I find it really hard to believe that the American people who, in every single community in the United States, you'll find someone who's been touched, either personally or by someone they know or in their family, by gun violence. I can't believe that with good organization, which we're starting to see now, we can't change this ethic. I mean, but I could be wrong. Well, there's been a 35% increase in the nation's firearm homicide rate in 2020, and there are nearly 21,000 firearm homicides and more than 26,000 firearm suicides across the USA in 2021. Uh, this is from preliminary data from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Right. So the epidemic is clear and present. Yet people are buying guns and lining up to buy guns, as the article picture. Actually, it's a picture from a gun store here near where I am in Culver City, California, in the article in the, in the Guardian. But let's talk about the connection between guns and particularly these military-style firearms like the AR-15s and AK-47s in the hands of militias and the extent to which that is a compounding danger. It's not just the mayhem that people, with over 400 million guns, people shooting each other and committing suicide across the country, but the fact that you have an organized right wing in this country that's completely 
overtly fascist in many respects. And you've got representatives in the Congress, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosar and others, who are absolutely openly spouting fascism along with Stephen Bannon, their strategist. This is a clear and present danger. This is happening. I mean, the Republicans and Trump himself keep referring to the radical left Democrats. Well, maybe there's two or three radical left Democrats in in the entire Congress or maybe in the entire country. But there are hundreds, thousands, thousands of radical right, heavily armed people in this country who are calling for insurrection. We just learned from the text from Mark Meadows at the time of January the 6th, where 34 members of the Republican House, current members as it happens, were texting him to urge him and Trump to continue the insurrection and start the stop the steal lie. So this is what's happening in the real world. We, we have a radical right Republican Party that's being captured in many ways by neo-fascists. And you've got this gun epidemic and you've got these militias. So to me, to me that's the parallel story to the 150 million guns sold in this country since Sandy Hook. Yeah, I think you're right, Ian. It is a parallel story, and it's one that um, we haven't, um, I think, adequately, and when I say we, I mean, um, I always say news media in quotes, but whatever the public sources of information are, we haven't looked this directly in the eye and seen that it is uh, a phenomenon. I, I, you know, I'm not an, an expert in the in the history of fascism, but I can certainly see parallels. And what always seems to be um, a driving force is the belief that somehow there was a better system and obedience to that system, whether by force or persuasion, is essential to, quote, the good life. I think the gun industry and certain politicians have taken advantage of this feeling of nostalgia for somehow this undefined better path. And in the United States, to a large extent, that, that means a white national Christian past. They've taken advantage of this. And if you, I urge people, which often we don't do, especially people on the side of wanting to have gun regulation, go and look at what the advertising is. Go and look at what gun manufacturers say about why you need this gun. Visit a gun store and see the kind of um, advertising, the kind of weapons that are sold. And to me, for most people, it should be an eye opener because this is no longer about, um, you know, when I was a kid and the Boy Scouts, we went out target shooting. This is no longer about that. It's no longer only about hunting, although there are, you know, plenty of hunters. It's about you need this gun to resist some imagined or hyperventilated um, government. And as you point out, this terrible radical opponent of yours, we can no longer have a, a ground for discussion. When you lose that common ground for discussion and you have the forces of the gun industry and some of the stuff that the NRA publishes is really, uh, as cynical as you might be, it's astounding what they publish. And then you see... Um, you begin to see that, yeah, this is this is not just it's no longer well. It can't happen here, in in my opinion. Um, what it says is that we must be always vigilant and we must be active to prevent this. Well, I think it's encapsulated in what happened in Wisconsin with Carl Rittenhouse, this seventeen-year-old at the time, I believe he was, with a AR-15 assault rifle, shooting couple of demonstrators, you know, radical left socialists, right? I mean, they were just demonstrating for very legitimate reasons. And he shoots them down. One of the victims tried to take the gun away from him and was shot. You know, he was married with a young daughter. Nobody talks about him anymore, but this Rittenhouse now has become a hero of the right. He goes around on lecture tours and he's hailed at all these right-wing gatherings and and the victims, of course, are forgotten. As most victims of uh, of gun violence are forgotten. So this is what's happening now in the country. This celebration 
of violence versus forgetting the victims of gun violence. So is there any way to turn that around? The whole lie about the interpretation or the misinterpretation of the Second Amendment is that the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. And then the rest of it, of course, is what the Heller decision turned on its head and put first, which is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The first part of it has been forgotten, just like the victims of, uh, of Rittenhouse have been forgotten. And the reality is, Tom, that we are not free and secure because of guns. We can't go to church, we can't go to malls, we can't go to movie cinemas, we can't go to schools without being afraid of being shot. And our kids are being trained, these grandkids, my grandkids are being trained to, you know, duck and cover like we were during the Cold War, expecting a Soviet thermonuclear bomb. I mean, it's just crazy. Well, I don't, I, I don't disagree that it's, that it's crazy. Um, I, I do find it very interesting, though, this definition of freedom. I was reading uh, something about in, in the late antiquity. I know this is a little bit of historical analysis, but in late antiquity, some of the scholars who were offended by the sort of debauchery that went on said, look, yeah, there is freedom, but there's also freedom to say no. And that's a very, to me, and I thought about it in this present context, the freedom to say no. You don't give up your freedoms when you say no to gun violence. You're just saying we want to extend freedom so that it really is meaningful. So this idea that, um, and, and, and you, you know, you talked about the, the, the Rittenhouse case. It's the idea that somehow people strutting around at the local coffee shop packing an AR-15 or actually shooting somebody are, are good people because they're acting in defense of freedom is actually quite the contrary. They're restricting freedom. They're not acting for freedom. They're acting against the freedoms that we learn cannot be won through violence, but through intermediation and talking to each other and not, not having everything we want. In terms of how are we going to solve this? I, I, one of the great disappointments to me is that uh, there are so many um, so-called, if they still exist, moderate or even more than moderate conservative Republicans who simply will not stand up and be counted. You know, the, la- the last vice president is a perfect example of that, but there are lots of others. You know, um, they, they play kind of mirror to Trump. Trump has this thing where he's, skates around, you know, he never comes out and says um, really hateful fascist things, or he may hint at them, and then he comes back and he has some excuse for that. Well, they're playing the same mirror game. Oh, yeah, Trump said this, but, you know, um, that's not the real issue here. They need to stand up and say, no, this is really wrong, but of course, why don't they do that? Um, Because they're playing political performance. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think uh, those of us who are from from the moderate and, you know, as you say, there are some radical left people in the Democratic Party, but most people are moderate. They just want to live their lives. They have to be organized and willing to be active. And if we're not willing to do that, you know, you can just start waving goodbye. I I do think about my children and my grandchildren and what what kind of America they're going to live in. I see some hopeful signs. I think the last election was a pretty good rejection of, you know, Herr Trumpler's, excuse me, Mr. Trump's um, program, his agenda. But I by no means think that's the end of the uh, uh, of the deep right. I mean, this guy DeSantis down in Florida has some of the wackiest ideas I've ever heard. But his so-called base seems to they love it. (laughs) They don't realize they're being played, but they love it. Even Donald Trump said. He loves the uneducated. Well, yeah, I can see why. Well, Tom Diaz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my great pleasure, Ian, any time. Have a good holiday. Oh, let me just remind the audience, though, that uh, you have a a really good video that you put together at YouTube, and we'll we'll link that on our website at backgroundbriefing.org. Great. Thank you so much. 
And again, I've been speaking with Tom Diaz, as writer, lawyer, and public speaker on the gun industry and gun control. He's formerly senior policy analyst at the Violence Policy Center. He's the author of Making a Killing and The Last Gun, How Changes in the Gun Industry Are Killing Americans and What It Will Take to Stop It, and Tragedy in Aurora, The Culture of Mass Shooting in America. And his latest book is Broken Scales, The Crisis of Race and Justice in a Divided America. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the announcement today from the European Parliament that, quote, it recognises the Holodomor, the artificial famine of 1932 to 1933 in Ukraine caused by a deliberate policy of the Soviet regime as genocide against the Ukrainian people. Someone pulls an easy trigger Puts another to the ground Disbelief Staring at his fingers Through which his blood runs With his life And the drums of war Are getting louder A sound you never Heard before Gonna come to your town Gonna find your corner Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christina Floria, who's a professor of history at Cornell University, who teaches courses on Eastern European and Soviet history, World War II, and interwar Europe. Her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition in Eastern European politics and societies. She's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe, and she has an article of the New York Review of Books, Ukraine's Long Self-Determination. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christina Floria. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Christina. And today the European Parliament voted on a resolution declaring that the EU legislature, quote, recognizes a lot more the artificial famine of 1932 to 1933 in Ukraine caused by deliberate policy of the Soviet regime as a genocide against the Ukrainian people. Mm. So how significant is that? Ah, well... I should probably begin by giving a little bit of background on the debates actually behind this, uh, where this push for having this recognized is coming from and what the controversy is around it. The first thing to know is that this famine, basically what the Ukrainians are pushing for now, I guess is a particular understanding of Ukrainian national identity that became increasingly defined around this episode of the Holodomor as a kind of how should I how should I put it as a kind of defining moment basically for uh, the Ukrainian nation. But behind this narrative, which you know there's absolute truth to it, it's also important to mention that the famine, which is described now as genocide, was actually a much broader phenomenon. That a very large number of its victims, I mean over four million people were concentrated in Ukraine. But the famine was basically the consequence of a much broader process, namely the process of collectivization, of forced collectivization carried out by Stalin that he actually began a few years earlier in 1928. And it really affected a lot of the heavily agricultural regions of the Soviet Union. And another case that's, um, I guess, less known um, and less talked about would be that of Kazakhstan, which around at the same time as this was happening in Ukraine, also underwent a huge famine with, um, let me see, over 1.5 million people dead. Um, and there is a book on this by a historian, Sarah Cameron, called The Hungry Step. So I just wanted to mention just so that um, people understand basically what the broader context is behind this. Um and so the collectivization campaign, basically, that Stalin launched in 1928 was aimed at uh, confiscating grain from these 
heavily agricultural regions, grain that peasants were not willing to sell for very low prices. And the overall objective that Stalin had, in my understanding, was not necessarily, you know, targeting a particular national group for extermination, but rather uh, carrying out uh, an, uh, an industrialization, heavy industrialization campaign at very high speed. In order to do that, to bring up the Soviet Union up to speed with the rest of the industrialized world, given uh, Stalin's growing fear of an impending war, he had to uh, requisition grain and to sell grain on international markets. And so against the advice given to him by other people that uh, he was surrounded with, he decided to proceed with this extremely coercive form of collectivization, just taking grain by force from peasants. Uh, and given that Ukraine was basically the breadbasket of the Soviet Union at this point, this area ended up being uh, suffering tremendously or being the one that suffered absolutely the most. Now, the debate over the term genocide, I have to mention here again that it's not, there is a controversy behind it. And um, here's the reason. When the term genocide first emerged or was first used, it was basically introduced by a Polish lawyer, a uh, Polish Jewish lawyer, Rafael Lemkin. This was in 1944 to describe essentially what had happened to the Jews during the Holocaust. And it was defined then, some historians argued that it was not exactly his invention, that he drew also on the, an older language of critique against imperial uh, rule and imperial oppression. It, it, he defined or he used this term to talk about the destruction, partial or uh, total, of usually an ethnic group or a racial group with basically the aim of annihilating that group biologically. And what is controversial, what's not completely settled about this Ukrainian case is that it's not entirely clear whether Stalin, you know, there are no documents that you can point to that would show that Stalin specifically targeted the Ukrainians as a nation in order to annihilate them. I think what we do know for sure is that he targeted the peasantry and his goal was basically to introduce this idea of class struggle into the villages uh, to foment basically a class war between so-called rich peasants or kulaks as he called them and uh, poor peasants, categories that didn't really exist or were not really uh, essential to how peasants thought about themselves. But Ukraine being a predominantly agricultural country and concentrating so much of the Soviet Union's grain resources was hardest hit by this. And now one argument that was made in retrospect, given that um, right, this uh, famine overwhelmingly affected Ukraine, was that the famine was actually the product of an intentional policy, that it was uh, really a sort of orchestrated campaign to eliminate Ukrainians as a people. So this is where there is not, there isn't def a definite agreement. And here's, I, I, I try to explain why. Well, there is, of course, a massive political subtext, if you will, to all of this, given the war in Ukraine uh, yeah. and the fact that this vote of the European Parliament is likely to enrage Putin. And of course, Putin is using the word genocide to describe this massive Orwellian lie that he has foisted this war about, yeah. which is that the genocide happening against Russians in Ukraine or against Russian speakers, and that Ukraine is run by fascists. When, yeah, it, when it is clear that if there's a fascist regime on the planet today, it's uh, the Putin regime in Russia. And furthermore, the leader of the Russia's oldest civil rights group, Memorial, which has uncovered the crimes of Stalin, was mm -hmm. shut down last year by Putin. Putin is himself a Stalinist and has been trying to resurrect the great hero, Joseph Stalin, and Putin is imitating his actions. So, in fact, Jan Machinsky, the head of Memorial, was told by Putin not to accept his Nobel Prize uh, about a week ago, or a little over a week ago. So. That's what's happening externally, right? So what do you think this resolution by the EU Parliament is likely to, I mean, it's likely to enrage Putin, but what do you think he's, he's going to do about it? 
Oh, well, you know, as a historian, I'm especially bad at predicting <laughs> future actions. I don't really know what he he's going to say in response. But one thing that's really striking is just how the very term or the very concept of genocide, as you also mentioned, has been flying around a lot lately from, uh, you know, both sides. It's kind of like a competition, basically, for uh, uh, who has the largest number of atrocities. And so in the case of Putin, again, you see the term, and here I must have talked about this earlier in an earlier conversation with you about how he's very much recycling the language that the Soviets were using in World War II as they were basically push, pushing to the West and discovering a lot of the concentration camps that the Nazis had organized in the East, and then revealing these uh, massive atrocities that also fed into their propaganda machine. So what's really tricky here is that there's obviously propaganda, uh, you know, going on from, from, from everywhere. Um, and the very term genocide, you know, just like uh, fascist and so on, has been used a lot, right, by both sides to describe very different things. Um, yeah, as for what he will do, I'm not really, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it's pretty clear by now, I think there were many more uh, direct or many more open manifestations of support, basically, for Ukraine on the part of Europeans that, Putin, I mean, he he hasn't really done anything uh, totally outrageous about them yet. He just manifests his disapproval, and that's about it. I don't think he can do that much more at this point. Right, but he's definitely rewriting history, or he has his own revisionist history. He wrote this 5,000-word screed, oh, yeah. which was completely bizarre, and he often repeats all of these crazy ideas and it talks about how he's the reincarnation of... Peter the Great, etc. Um, and of course, in your article at the New York Review of Books, Christina Floria, Ukraine's long self-determination, Ukrainians have declared their independence five times, each time defining their nation anew. This is the fifth time, and it's being met with absolute brutality. It is an obscene what Putin is doing now, destroying the civilian mm -hmm. infrastructure to punish the Ukrainian people. This is a war against civilians, largely. Yeah, and it would not be the first time. I mean, since we're talking about Holodomor, it was a similar, well, it, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's a similar in the sense that um, it's primarily civilians who suffer, right, at the end of the day. In that case, it was just millions and millions of peasants. Right, who... but the word in Ukrainian, Holodomor means death by starvation. And yeah. if you cut off people's electricity, and their food and their water, you're doing the same thing. Not that it's going to be comparable to what happened in 1932, but it's clearly a repeat of history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, one difference that I would say might be there or might be worth talking about is that in this case, in the case of what Putin is doing now, the attack right, is directed primarily at Ukrainians, at Ukrainians and Ukraine uh, for the choices that they've made and for speaking up against Russia and so on. In the case of the 1930s, I think what, what complicates that episode is that it's basically an assault by a communist system, right, a communist regime against peasants who are not fully integrated within this communist system. And so that communist regime included both Ukrainians and Russians and whoever uh, who were recruited into the state apparatus or into these uh, groups, basically, that would go around the countryside forcing peasants to collectivize. And so it was, I think, uh, much less clear cut than things are now. I would say that's one difference. But is there any way to get to Putin and disabuse him of this historical nonsense that he believes? Is this going to be a war of histories uh, here, along with this battlefield that's looking mm -hmm. more and more like World War One, with trench warfare and a, a winter mm -hmm. approaching and a long slog of a war likely to mm -hmm. accelerate in the spring with a Russian spring offensive? 
I think it's always bound to be a war of histories. I mean, one of the things that I try to convey also in this article is that an inevitable part of um, Ukrainian history, I guess, or if you follow it over the long term, as I've tried to do there in providing this overview, is that wars have been really crucial uh, to these constant or repeated attempts to redefine what the Ukrainian nation is about. And in fact, it was only, this is sort of a perverse kind of argument to make, but it was both in World War I and World War II or coming out of those uh, that Ukrainians actually managed to agree on something or come together within the framework of a unitary state. So in a way, wars, at least in the 20th century, have been sort of indispensable to these repeated articulations of a Ukrainian national idea and the vision of a Ukrainian state. And so unfortunately, it's really unfortunate that that's the case. But I think, I mean, Ukraine's geopolitical position might have something to do with this. And today, again, I think it's another instance of this in which Ukrainians are essentially trying to create a new national narrative, are trying to basically separate themselves basically from this uh, Soviet association, right, with the Soviet past, and more specifically now with from Russia, right, itself, that um, from Russia's revisionism and from Russia's claims, basically, that they do not, are not entitled really to national self-determination. So history is absolutely, absolutely crucial, I think, to this whole process. It's mobilized by both sides uh, repeatedly, right, as they make these different claims. But I think just in closing, uh, Christina, it's very different in the sense that what's happening now is Putin is trying to destroy the Ukrainian nation as opposed to earlier with the Minsk agreement in 2014, he was basically trying to dominate it through a one-sided peace treaty. And, and then, of course, prior to that, he took a big chunk of it in Crimea and the Donbass. So that is different from literally trying to destroy it. And he is. He's destroying the infrastructure, the buildings, uh, the mm -hmm. economy, and killing an awful lot of Ukrainians, mostly a lot of civilians. If it weren't for the Ukrainian army, he would have conquered it and captured it by now. Mm, yeah, this is absolutely true. And I mean, one of the things that I wonder about is if this this turn, I mean, I think this turn towards a much more brutal kind of warfare is probably the product of a combination of things. One is uh, Putin feeling cornered, feeling stuck, as you might have read, right? He canceled the usual press conference that he would normally hold because, well, uh, most likely he's trying to avoid questions, right, about what's happening in Ukraine with the Russian troops. So the combination of feeling cornered, of feeling stuck, of having to save face somehow that, uh, you know, you've seen also in previous wars, uh, what uh, similar factors lead usually to radicalization uh, and brutalization of warfare. And maybe um, a another uh, aspect of it is his response basically to, um, to, the, to Western reactions essentially to Ukraine. Could be. Right, because of that, it, it's funny though because it's, he's sort of um, kind of <laughs> created a self-fulfilling prophecy or a vicious circle in which he's just digging himself into a deeper and deeper hole at this point. Well, Christina Floria, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Christina Floria, who's a professor of history at Cornell University who teaches courses on East European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe. Her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition in East European politics and societies. And she's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe. And she has an article at the New York Review of Books, Ukraine's Long Self-Determination. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.